Okay, if I could uh, get your attention so we could get started. We are in that section of the Gospel of Luke between Luke chapter 9 and chapter 13. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. And there's really basically two themes in today's lesson as you go through the stories. Jesus is going to do a lot of teaching and he's going to tell parables. And there's going to be two things that should jump out at us as we go through it. And the first is, of course, his confrontation with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to tell parables explaining what's going on there. And he's also going to confront them. He's really going to get in their face. Uh, and then the second theme it has to do with his own disciples. So on the one hand, the, the people who have rejected him, who are against him, He's got to deal with them, got to confront them. But on the other hand, he's, his own disciples are clueless. The, they say that the author, you know, Luke, is like getting firsthand information from the people who are really there. And they are, and they write in their own gospels, like the Gospel of John says the same thing. Jesus was telling this to us, and we just didn't understand. Or we just didn't have any idea what he was talking about. So they were basically clueless which uh, made me think of this movie clip <laughs> about cl really clueless people. <laughs> oh. So in Luke chapter 9 today, uh, last week Jesus was doing uh, all the miracles. Last, the last lesson last week was all about all the miracles Jesus was doing. And we saw that that... that uh, ended with him asking the pivotal question that what, what this was really all about in uh, verse 18, chapter 9, verse 18. Jesus says, who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered, basically, he, you're a great prophet. They all think you're this great prophet like Elijah or John the Baptist. And then Jesus says to them a question that we all have to deal with, we all have to answer this at one time or another. But who do you say that I am? And so this is all important. His own disciples, who do they say? And you'll see the contrast here. Uh, it was very nice what the crowd says. Oh, he's a great man, a great teacher, a great prophet. But the disciples know something even more intimate and true, which is you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so they, they have, uh, in Matthew's account, Matthew also says, Jesus quotes Jesus as saying, a flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but only God in heaven. So it's a spiritual truth that has been revealed to them by the Lord God. And so they know something, his, his disciples, his true believers know something that the people, that the crowds don't know. And of course, in reality today, it's exactly like that now. Everybody in the world loves Jesus. I mean, that, that, that's something we, you know, can't lose sight of. Whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or anybody that's ever read or knows anything about religion, they all think Jesus is great. Jesus is a great teacher, a great prophet, a great religious leader. And so that's all real nice, but it, it takes more than that. 
It takes your belief system must be more than that. And so his disciples have been uh, clued in, so to speak, of the, the deeper reality, the most, more important truth that Jesus is God in the flesh who has been sent in the world by God the Father to die on the cross and save them for their sins. And that's the, the third truth that they must know that they haven't dealt with yet, this idea of the cross. Uh, they've left their home, their business, their family to follow Jesus. And naturally, uh, in the next line, when Jesus says, verse 22, warning, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and be crucified. So, whoa, if you'd left everything for this guy and, and you thought he was going to bring in the kingdom and make everything right, naturally, if he tells you, well, I'm going to be arrested and killed, you, you, you want to prevent that. You, you want to stop that. You can't get with that program. And so Jesus, uh, remember again in Matthew's account, uh, Peter says, no, forbid it. We won't let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So immediately, I'm sure the shock value of that was incredible. Jesus responds so strongly to that that they're all confused. They don't know what's going on. They, uh, they say, we didn't understand. We, 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 don't, we didn't know at that time. And the whole point, Jesus' whole point is, is that the, this is the one thing you need to know that you don't know yet, and you, and you don't understand this. And so from this point on, Jesus is going to continue to teach this concept of the suffering servant. Jesus come into the world, not as the conquering king this time, but the suffering servant who's got to sacrifice himself on the cross for their sins. Before the kingdom is set up, Jesus must be crucified as a vicarious sacrifice for their sins and they they haven't gotten with that yet they don't understand that so they're completely clueless so all through today's lesson you're going to see Jesus not only got to deal with these religious leaders who have rejected him and he's going to confront them over and over but he's also got to deal with his own clueless disciples which just haven't got they just hadn't gotten with the program yet um, fortunately for us, you know, we are all-knowing and we understand this whole deal so well that if we'd have been there, we'd have, we'd have known. I, I'm, I'm sure of that, right? <laughs> Probably not. We'd have been just like them. So uh, we see here that uh, Jesus, this is a pivotal time in Jesus' ministry. He's, he's had a great Galilean ministry. He's gone around to all the towns and villages uh, that were around the Sea of Galilee, all these little shipping, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, fishing villages and, uh, uh, you know, uh, towns built on the sides of these hills that you can still see the ruins of today. And Jesus was preaching the gospel uh, and the coming kingdom to all those people. But now he turns, he's at the farthest northern part up in Caesarea Philippi, and from this point on, this is like a pivot in his ministry, he turns and he's headed towards Jerusalem. And he knows that what awaits him in Jerusalem is the cross. And so Jesus has a different uh, teaching that he's going to give them for the next almost a year. Uh, instead of uh, what he's been teaching before about the grace of God, the kingdom of God, now he's going to be talking about the crucifixion, the sacrifice, 
being a servant. And so he continues that, that concept of what he's going to do. He transfers that to them as well in Luke chapter 9. He says to them, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, okay, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sacrifice myself. If anyone chooses to come after me, wishes to come, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So he's basically saying, in following me, you're going to have to do the same thing, in effect, as I'm doing. You're going to have to sacrifice yourself. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? And so uh, th that's what he's going to be teaching from this point on that's going to baffle them. They're just not going to get it for, until after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit coming. They're really not going to understand this concept of the suffering servant who died on the cross for them. And so uh, in each one of these stories, you can see in Luke chapter 9, verse 44 through 45, uh, after he talks about all this uh, teaching about the crucifixion, he says, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, open up your ears. You guys are not hearing what I'm saying. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men to be crucified. But 45, they tell this on themselves, but they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about his statement. So they were basically, I don't know what he's talking about, but I don't want to be admonished anymore by him, so I'm not going to say a word. So from that point on, you know, for the whole next year, he's, he's teaching about this, and they don't get it. And not only that, look at verse 46, chapter 946. I love this. This is so much like us, like all human beings. Look what they do. Instead of being willing to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him, look what they do. And an argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that amazing? And, of course, it's that vanity, it's that pride that wells up in all of us from time to time, and that competitive nature, and, and they shared that, you know. Uh, I want, remember all the times they came to Jesus and say, Lord, let us sit on your right or on your left and rule with you. Let us be the head guys, you know. And so here they, here they are arguing about who should be the head guys in the kingdom, just like we would do, just, just human nature. And so Jesus, knowing what was in their heart, he took a child. And this is the, the context. You've heard this story so many times. You know, bring the little children to me. And, and just like these little humble children, whoever uh, like them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. So he uses this little uh, infant you know, to teach them a lesson in humility. You've got to be humble like this little bitty kid, you know. See yourself as a, as a baby in order to follow me. You've got to have that kind of humility is what, is what he's saying. And so there in uh, 9, 44 and 45, you see their cluelessness. Then in verse 51, 9, 51, we see what I was talking about. 
from that point on, it says he resolutely, that means he was determined. He wouldn't let anything deter him or, or no detours. He resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was there, that he was going to be arrested and die. But he said, I know God sent me to do this, and I've got to do it. And he set his face to go. And then verse 53, it's repeated for emphasis. He was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. Okay, so now uh, this, this idea of commitment that he's trying to convey to his disciples. Look, you've got to follow me. You've got to be a servant. You've got to be willing to give up your own life to follow me. And so in verse 57 through 62, he gives three examples. The author gives three examples of Jesus teaching about that. And the first one is this guy. They were going along the road, verse 57, and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. You know, big statement. I mean, okay, bring out the crosses, <laughs> nail this guy up. And the guy said, well, I mean, except that, right? And so the guy, Jesus knows what's in his heart. And he knows the guy's really not that committed. And so Jesus says, uh, you, you're not like me. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. And the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So you, you want this life? You know, that means you own nothing and you have no home and you've given everything up. You don't have that kind of commitment yet. The second guy, he says to another, follow me. But the guy says, oh, yeah, sure, but uh, first permit me to go and bury my father. Well, in those days, the family estate always went to the oldest son. So we take it what this guy's saying is, well, you know, I'm in the family business, and, I'm, and my dad's uh, getting up there in age. And so as soon as he passes away and leaves me all the stuff, all the land and the business and the whole deal, then I'll come out and follow you, you know. Basically, when my ship comes in, then I'll, then I'll come out to see you, you know. So, again, no commitment. Look what Jesus said. He says, let me bury my father first. Jesus says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Wow, that seems a little severe. <laughs> what is he saying? He's basically saying, you know, uh, play on words. You've got the physically dead and the spiritually dead. So he's basically saying, you come out and follow me. Let the people who are spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let somebody else do that stuff. You come follow me. You commit your life to a spiritual life and let everybody that's involved in all the material realm uh, do that. It sounds severe and like he's being heartless and the whole deal, but that's not what he's trying to say here. He's saying, you got to make a commitment. you got to be willing to leave everything behind and come out and put me first. And one last guy here in verse 61 and 62, he says, the guy says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. In other words, first allow me to turn back and go home for a while. And Jesus says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, Nobody who says, first let me do all this other stuff, get my affairs in order and go back here and do this and whatever. Uh, he's saying, no. I mean, if you're really committed, if I'm your highest priority, that's where you'll put me and you'll come and follow me uh, right now 
and give everything else up. And so, that, so that's the, you know, the almost a hyperbole in his teaching about a commitment of his own disciples. And then the confrontation, uh, you, you can see with, with the, uh, the Pharisees, you have this confrontation uh, with the re- religious establishment that comes up and up. Uh, and it's about their traditions. They have grown up in this uh, strict religious legalistic system. They've been taught all these laws and all these traditions that they follow. And they basically see the means of salvation in that religion and in those traditions. And so Jesus is going to confront that. He's going to confront that and say, that's not the means of salvation. And in order to uh, explain it, he's going to tell parables. Uh, but we, first we see in uh, chapter 10 that he's going to, back to his disciples, he's going to send 70 of his disciples. Mo- most of the, like the movies they've done and, you, and maybe your own image of Jesus traveling around, there's just the 12 guys with him. But in reality, he had a much bigger entourage. He probably had over 100 people following him uh, at, at, at least at all times. And so he had this big uh, group, and he takes, uh, chooses 70 of them and sends them out kind of on what you would call a missionary journey. And what it is is a taste of that commitment and that sacrifice that he's been teaching about. It's a taste of denying yourself and taking up your cross because he says, uh, don't take any extra clothes, don't take any extra food, just trust in the Lord for your every need during this period of time. So they, they go out, and when they come back, the, the scene is basically they're praising God for all the people that listen to them, and, but we're also told that a lot of people, of course, rejected them and did not listen. And at verse 21, Jesus makes a comment that this is all about what God's doing. They went out, but what was going on? God was using them. They were depending on uh, God to provide, and God was using them in his service to to preach the gospel about the the kingdom of God that Jesus was going to make possible. So look what he says. Jesus says a prayer there in verse 21, chapter 10, 21. I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things. So all the people that rejected, that would not listen, that didn't get it, it's like it was hidden from them or something. But look at the other side of that. The people that believed, heard, he said, Thou didst hide these things from the wise and the intelligent, in other words, the proud. Their own pride and their own ego and their vanity kept them from hearing it. But you did it, you did reveal it to babes. Remember the illustration he used earlier, the humility of the little child who comes in all faith and belief? And that's, he uses that again here. So God revealed himself and revealed the truth about Jesus to all these people that were humble like little babies. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. So all through the scriptures we, we read that God blesses the humble, but God is against the proud, right? And, and this is just another example of that. People who opened up and who were humble and were looking for a Savior understood their need, 
uh, God revealed himself to them. Now, uh, about the, uh, the Pharisees and, and the people, the religious leaders who were against Jesus, he, Jesus is going to tell uh, a parable that's very famous beginning in verse 25. It says that a certain lawyer or religious leader, a scribe, came to Jesus to put him to the test. So all these religious leaders were constantly coming out, and they were trying to discredit Jesus. They were trying to discredit him, find fault, bring him down. He was a threat to their power. And so here we have one of them out, out there, uh, an example of that. And it says he trying to put Jesus to the test. Now remember, these religious leaders believed you, the means of your salvation was by keeping the law. They were brought up with all those traditions that they were to keep, and they were to keep the law of Moses, and that is the means of salvation to them that they were taught. Jesus knows that. Smart guy. So what he's going to do when this uh, scribe asks him this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is kind of a trick question because the religious leader knows that the popular teaching of the day, the traditional teaching, is that you, you keep the law. Jesus knows it's by the grace of God received by faith. So what Jesus is going to brilliantly do is tell a parable that's going to reveal to this guy and, of course, to us and, and everybody else there that these religious leaders don't keep the law. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So at the end of the story, after Jesus shows what real godly love is, what, what loving your neighbor really means, it's going to be obvious to all that the religious leaders don't have that. They're not keeping that most important law. That's what the parable is about. It, it's to reveal that the means of salvation is not keeping the law and the religious leaders there are not obeying that law to love your neighbor, okay? In fact, Jesus says at the end of the parable, verse 36, he asks this lawyer, this scribe, this religious leader, which of these men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? You know, the guy that was all beat up and robbed. And the guy had to convict himself. He said, well, I suppose the one who showed mercy towards him. In other words, the Samaritan. And, of course, Samaritans were hated enemies of the Jews. The, the, the term good Samaritan is a contradiction to them. There are no good Samaritans. They're all evil. They're all bad. There are enemies. And in the Mosaic Law, Moses had commanded, love your neighbor. But the Pharisees of first century had added and hate your enemy. So Jesus is going to reveal, no, you, you got that wrong. It's just the opposite. You're supposed to not only, the godly love is sacrificial and unconditional. So God loves everybody unconditionally. And you don't is the idea here. So going back to the beginning, I'll go through the parable real quick. He says, uh, what does the law say in verse 26? Because he knows that this guy thinks he keeps the law. He knows that this guy thinks the law is the means of salvation. So verse 26, Jesus says, what is in the law? How does it read? 
And the, the guy answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You have answered correctly. Now look, now look at this. Jesus says, Do this and you will live. He asked him, How shall I have eternal life? He said, If you keep the law perfectly, if you do this, you will live. Wow, that guy's probably all puffed up with that. Well, well, I do. So therefore, I'm good. I'm good to go. But Jesus is going to tell this parable proving that he's not good to go and he's not loving as, as God loves. And so Jesus replied, uh, and verse 29 explains this. The guy says, wishing to justify himself, he says, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Because why would he say that? Because Jesus, he knows that Jesus has been going around ministering to, hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, foreigners, right? They've, they've been criticizing him for it uh, every chance they get. Who is this guy who, who eats dinner with sinners, with tax collectors? And so this guy says, thinks he's tricking Jesus, thinks he's going to make him look bad. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Famous story, even if you don't own a Bible, uh, even if you're not a Christian, you know this story. It's that famous and that good. So Jesus says, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Here's a story that they're familiar with. Uh, Priests were constantly going They had vacation homes down in Jericho. And so here's Jerusalem up about 2,500 feet, and Jericho's down there below sea level. So just like you would go to Palm Springs or some desert place during the winter, they're all the time walking down there to Jericho. Uh, But it's a windy road, and there's a lot of robberies down there, and they know that. So he tells a story about something they know. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, And they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest. So this is the guy that you would think loves. This is the priest is the one. I know he's going to follow the law. I know he's going to love his neighbor. Not so fast. (laughs) There's a reversal in this story, obviously. The people that you assume will love their neighbor, the priest and the Levite, don't. And the guy that you can't stand, who you would think would never stop and help, is the good Samaritan, is the man from Samaria, right? A certain Samaritan who was on a journey came, verse 33, and when he saw the guy, he felt compassion. So you have this great contrast, you know. And uh, going back, the, the the priest comes by, sees the guy there, walks across on the other side of the road. Somebody said, why did that priest walk across the road and stay away from that guy? And somebody said, because he'd already been robbed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. But the Samaritan, here's the contrast, here's the reversal. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to show them. You, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you don't keep the law. You don't love like God commanded you to love. 
And so he, the Samaritan bandaged him and took care of him, put him on his own beast, took him to the inn, paid up, said, whatever else it costs, I'll, I'll pay. You know, tremendous commitment, tremendous sacrifice that the guy was making. God, again, godly love is what? Unconditional, sacrificial. So even though they weren't from the same country, even though Samaritans and Jews were enemies, it's unconditional. And even though it was going to cost this guy a whole bunch of money to have this guy fixed up and taken care of, sacrificial love. So this guy had godly love, right? Uh, one author I read said, uh, you know, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is really a metaphor. Uh, mankind is the man in the ditch. We are all, all of mankind in general is in the ditch. We all need help. We all need to be saved. And Jesus is the Good Samaritan offering help. He's the one that loves us with a godly love and gives us the help. Now, I don't know if that was, you know, the metaphor that Jesus, but it sure works for me. I think it hit, hits home great. Uh, and so uh, this is the conviction that he brings. This is the confrontation with the religious leaders that this guy is forced at the end of the parable. And Jesus says, uh, who, was the, who was the one that really loved the neighbor? Who was the, the real neighbor? And he had to admit that it was the Samaritan, not him, not the priest, not the Levite. So Jesus says, then you go and be like the Samaritan. In other words, you're not like that. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just the wisdom of Jesus in teaching these guys that are so cocky and self-confident and so arrogant and prideful. He brings them down, makes them convict themselves. It's great stuff, okay? So now in chapter 11, uh, you have the part, we won't stop there, but uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. I mean, these guys are so clueless. They go, now how do you do this prayer thing? So he's got to give them a form, you know, to pray. Again, the cluelessness of the disciples. And then the rejection, the formal, complete, no, no going back rejection of the religious leaders in, in chapter 11, verse 14 and following. You can see it there. Full-blown rejection. He's doing miracles, and they attribute his miracles to Satan. You're doing, yeah. You're doing these miracles. We can't refute that. But it's the power of Satan. You're on Satan's side. And, of course, Jesus proves just through simple logic how silly that is. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Would Satan do something against Satan? Would he bring himself down? I mean, he just crushes their argument. Uh, but he basically says, anybody that, that thinks that way, that has rejected me, is in for a bad time. You're going to end up worse than you were. So he gives this kind of proverbial saying about when a strong man guards his own homeland and his possessions and someone stronger than him attacks. So that's the, that's the point he's making there. By rejecting him, your lot is going to be worse than it is now. In verse 23, this is powerful. He looks at these guys and he says, there's no neutrality here. He who is not with me is against me. So the crowd is kind of sitting on the fence. Uh, they don't want to go against the religious leaders. 
but they like what Jesus is doing, and he's saying, you can't have it both ways. He who's not with me is against me, no neutrality. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And so if you don't come and gather with me, follow me, you're going to be scattered. Uh, and so he, he tells another parable there about the um, unclean spirit that leaves and then one worse comes in, and, and that's what he's saying. If you don't commit yourself to Christ, it's going to be even worse afterwards. So that's, that's the bottom line, okay? Full-blown rejection from the religious leaders, and the people have got to make a decision to accept or reject. They've got to make that commitment that's required. All of this ends in chapter 11, and you see in verse 53 and verse 54, what's the end result of this? When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, and they were plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So clearly, they're done with him. They're all about bringing him down. They're all about having him killed. They're hostile. Uh, and that's the state of the nation of Israel against Jesus having rejected him. And he's going to confront that rejection. He's going to confront their error as we go. And you can see it uh, in chapter 11. He's already told them that in rejecting him, they're in big trouble. He says in verse 39, he says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You think Jesus doesn't confront people? <laughs> he said, can you imagine these prideful religious leaders? Chapter 11, verse 39 they asked him, you don't do the traditions. You don't do the cleansing ceremony. What's up with that? You don't follow our religion? And Jesus says, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup. You do this washing and you clean the outside, uh, talking about their body. But you are full of robbery and wickedness inside. So on the exterior, you show a good game. But on the inside, you're greedy and ruthless and you're crooks. And so six woes from that point on, verse 42, through the rest of the chapter, six woes. And here's a tip. You don't want the woes. The woes are bad. <laughs> Behind woes come pain and suffering, and it's a bad deal. Woe to you, you hypocrites. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues. You're all proud, and you want the best for yourself. Woe, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. So enter inside, there's nothing but death inside them, and on and on. So the six woes reveal the condemnation that Jesus has for them, in store for them who do not believe. Uh, now Luke chapter 12, uh, the first 12 verses there, are Jesus continues his teaching on the hypocrisy hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Does Jesus back off? Well, I've roughed those guys up pretty good. I better back off and lay off of them for a while. No. The con confrontations continue with him teaching about their hypocrisy. So 
The question is, why are the Pharisees rejecting him and his own followers so dazed and confused? Why, do, why don't his own followers get it, and why do the religious leaders reject him? He's going to tell a great parable there, chapter 12, verse 13. This is the parable of the rich fool. And the idea here is, why are people so opposed to what Jesus has to offer? And why do the people that like him, why are they so confused and so clueless? And so he's going to tell this parable of the rich fool to illustrate the incorrect obsession with materialism and worldliness. Remember the parable of the soils? What did he say? He said, you guys don't get it. You hear the word, it's, it, you think it's great, but you don't really respond or commit yourself to it. Why? The deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world and the pursuit of pleasure. And that's what he's saying in this parable as well. That's what distracts people. That's what keeps people away. They, they won't commit to him because they're so wrapped up in all the stuff going on in the world. So someone in the family who is wrapped up and wants the stuff says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. In other words, to give me more money. And Jesus said, Who appointed me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and on your guard against every form of greed. So that's what this is about. That's their problem. For not even one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. So he had this great farm. Very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I've got such an abundance, I can't even store it all. He says, Well, I'll tear it down in the barn and build a bigger one, and I'll store it all there. More stuff. You never have enough stuff. When you have too much, you just build a bigger barn. You know, hoard that money, hoard that stuff. And so... The guy says, reveals where he is. You're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. This guy's just successful. Well, he reveals where he is in the next line. He says, notice also he said, I will do this. I will tear down my grain, my goods, my barns, my field, my crop. Hmm, any problem there with that? And I will say to my soul, he thinks he owns his own soul. Soul, you have many goods laid up for you many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You want to know who God thinks is a fool? This guy. <laughs> this guy who's totally preoccupied with all the stuff in the world, and that's what his whole life is about. And so God says, uh, through Jesus says, so is the man Fool, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so what would be wise would be to be rich toward God. So what did the guy do? What were his mistakes? He mistook time for eternity. He just said, you know, uh, I've got plenty of time, and then he didn't. He mistook his body for his soul, and he mistook what was God's for what was his. He thought he owned all this, was all his stuff, and he had all the rights over it, and then God took him out. And, of course, that happens every day. So what's the world's problem? He goes on to teach the rest of that. You know, where's your anxiety coming from? Why are people so worried? Why are they so depressed? Because they're so wrapped up in the world. They're so wrapped up in all their stuff that they just are worrying about it all the time. All the stuff they've hoarded has become this incredible responsibility 
and it's got me worried, and I've got all these issues, and they're just, you know, and that's what Jesus says, that relax. That's not what life is about. You know, change, give yourself a spiritual perspective. And so he says, God will take care of your needs. Why are you so anxious? And verse 34 explains it. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 34. Very simple statement, but it explains everything. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Isn't that powerful? I mean, it's so simple. What's wrong with everybody? Their treasure is in the, the wrong thing. The, what they see as a treasure is passing away. And that's where their heart is. That's why they're so anxious. If the kingdom of God was their treasure, they have a totally different perspective. If it was all about the Lord, if it was all about spiritual things, they just have a totally different perspective and way of seeing things. So that's, that's their problem. And then uh, chapter uh, 13, verse, uh, verse 1 through uh, 6 is, is a great little passage. Um, and this is a, you should mark this down and make a note of it, yellow line it, whatever. Because what is one of the questions people ask constantly? Why do bad things happen to good people? And that's basically the question they asked him, and here's his answer. It is, his answer is, you guys misunderstand the relationship of sin and circumstances. Because something bad happens to somebody has nothing to do necessarily whether they're good or bad. These natural disasters happen to everybody, right? We live in a fallen world. It's a dangerous world with a rough environment. <laughs> you know, the, we were talking about several people today that those strong winds that knocked trees down and, and fell on houses and the whole deal. I mean, this stuff happens. It doesn't have anything to do with your good or bad, but what's important is, because everybody's a sinner, we all need to repent. That's where your focus needs to be. So you misunderstand the relationship of sin and circumstances. What really need to, you, be, you need to be focused on is your repentance and acceptance of God's grace, okay? Uh, and then you have the Sabbath confrontations, which again is Jesus getting right in their face. He's healing people on the Sabbath in chapter uh, 13, verse 10 through 17, and they're going, wait a minute. You know our laws, our traditions. You got six days to heal people, not on the Sabbath. We don't work on the Sabbath, Right? And so Jesus uh, corrects that very strongly. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I wrote the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, for man, Sabbath is meant for man's good not to do him harm. You guys would deny these people being healed? You got it all wrong. So the Sabbath confrontations. Uh, and then uh, one last thing I want to make a quick comment about. I, I sent it out in my message. Jesus it's going to address, I, I skipped it back there, but in uh, chapter 12, verse 49 and through 59, Jesus addresses uh, a warning to his closest disciples and the people that are following him. He says, look, there's going to be hard times coming. 
there's going to be a need, there's going to be a division, and there's going to be a need for you to commit to me. Families are going to be divided. Relationships are going to be broken. Naturally, we're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus came to bring peace and love. And you're talking about division of families and broken relationships? That's, That's not peace. What Jesus is saying is, and this particularly applies now, but really applied, the greatest example there was in first century Jerusalem. After Jesus' resurrection, ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit came, the church, people started, uh, arose there in Jerusalem, and thousands of Jews were coming to Christ. Uh, it's a guess to how many, but, but there were thousands, might have been 20,000 in, in a very short period of time. And what happens? They're coming to Christ, they're, they're leaving their traditions behind, and their parents and their family are going, if you do this, you will break up our family. If you do this, I have no son any longer. And all that happened, literally happened. And it wasn't uh, too long later that the establishment even said, all these Jews, round them up, put them in jail, and, and execute them. So the division that Jesus is talking about, the commitment that he's talking about, literally actually happened to the very disciples that he was talking about. And you've got to be willing, here's the warning, you've got to be willing to make that commitment, to leave traditions behind if necessary, to leave your family behind. As important as the family unit is, as important as your parents may be or children may be to you, if it means that you need to be committed to Christ and leave them behind, if, if, if that has to be, then you've got to make Christ your priority is what he's telling them. So it's a very difficult passage. All the time people are emailing me and saying, what does this mean? And you've got even a more severe passage later, and Jesus gives the hyperbole in, of a contrast. In contrast to loving me, you have to you know, hate your family. And that, that really gives us problems to hear that. But basically, he's just using... Uh, the Greek word actually means reject. So when you put that in there, it helps a lot, I think. So basically, but the point he's trying to make in a very exaggerated way is in contrast to your commitment to me, you're, you're willing to do that, to leave them behind. Well, let me conclude with this, because uh, I, you know, Jesus, it's kind of a shocking, you know, story after story, these confrontations and chastising his followers. I mean, to the religious leaders, he's saying, you hypocrites. Can you imagine saying that to your ministers? Woe to you. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're rotten, filthy inside. And to his own disciples, he's saying, how long must I put up with your lack of faith? You have to be more committed. You can't be going home and leave all this. No, you've got to be committed to me. So, I mean, you know what? It's, it's almost like Jesus is spending his whole time trying to dissuade, trying to deter, trying to inhibit people from following him. Is that what's going on? I, I saw this story. Uh, a guy uh, uh, who'd been a minister for 40 years was uh, giving advice to a young minister, and he said, Son, work hard to keep your church as small as you can. <laughs> Naturally, the guy said, What? What? What could you mean by that? I mean, who goes with that? 
I mean, who wants a small, I mean, everybody wants to build it up, more money, more people, more buildings, the whole deal. So what he meant was by that, preach the truth, not just any truth, the absolute truth of the gospel. And you know what? The truth is divisive. A whole lot of people that hear the truth are not going to want to hear it, and they're going to leave. So he's saying, preach the truth and preach the demands, the commitment of following Jesus. So clearly that only, and do it so clearly that only those who are fully committed, only those who are ready and willing to give up all for Christ will join themselves to you. That's pretty scary, right? So this old minister was saying, you know, don't let people just come and say, oh, yeah, we can believe whatever we want, and this is a great location for a church, and we'll be coming in. No, preach in such a way that those kind of people go away. Most churches just want a big crowd, but Jesus wants committed followers who counted the cost and don't turn back, don't fall away, but remain committed. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these stories and these parables of Jesus and how confrontational and powerful they were and hopefully convicting to us as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.